Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are the headlines from round one of the NBA playoffs so far. Plus, in the NHL, which number one seed is likely to go further in the Stanley Cup playoffs? And the next steps after the latest trade request from a star NFL wideout. It's episode 69 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Again, everybody here on Thursday, April 21st, 2022, the 69th edition of Let Me Speak coming right at you. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I apologize for the unexpected week off, just some scheduling conflicts, obviously, with the new radio job over at WEI and plus the other side gig that I have. So just not enough time to get a podcast uh, episode for that week. But we are here. Uh, we are ready to get going, and we've got a lot to talk about. But first, uh, just updates on what's going on here in the Swampscott area. Obviously, it's getting warmer out. The sun is shining a lot longer. Uh, still a little bit cold. Obviously, we're closer to the ocean, so it's not quite you know feeling like spring yet. It's definitely breezy like spring, I'll tell you that. Um, but things have been going uh, really well, especially over at WEEI getting used to those overnight shifts, uh, just doing a lot more sleeping uh, during the day and uh, just finding a way to balance out uh, the two jobs that I have, plus controlling this podcast out here. Uh, it's been going good, and I'm I'm very appreciative over at WEEI. You know, it's only been about two or three weeks, but uh, to see all the, the people out there uh, and all the support I've been getting, uh, it's incredible. And uh, I look forward to... Uh, Hopefully continuing a career, which is a which is a good step. It's a good step in the door here at WEI and overnight. And what's great about that is you get to pay, you know, you get to go deeper into some sports headlines, you know. Um, and that's sort of where we start is, you know, you're able to get deeper uh, into the NBA. Obviously, over at WEI, the big story is Net Celtics uh, and then throwing on a, bu- a couple other uh, Boston stuff. But we'll talk about that when we get into let's get local. But let's start in the NBA because obviously – that's been the big story uh, since the playoffs got underway last weekend, and it has been crazy. I mean, absolutely crazy. Um, I mean, crazy in terms of, you know, a lot of different headlines. Um, games, you know, for the most part have kind of been, you know, subpar, at least in my eyes, but it's like kind of like a 60-40 kind of thing. Um, and I think, you know, on the the first thing, you know, breaking down series by series, I think you have to talk. Miami Atlanta the one uh, versus eight spot and as we're recording right now the Heat are up two nothing on the Hawks and obviously game two was much more closer uh, than game one but looking at that series I think you know the big thing that stands out to me is the defense that Miami has been able to put on Trey Young I think that's been the story of the series because Trey Young has not looked like himself in this series against Miami. I mean, game one, he shoots one for 12 
and 0 for 7 from 3, finishes with 8 points, 4 assists, and 6 turnovers, okay? He bettered that in game two, but not by much. He was 25 points on 10 of 20 shooting, but 2 of 10 from 3, and then you throw on 7 assists and 10 turnovers. So Miami has done a great job of shutting down Trey Young, not just shutting him down, but kind of limiting his playmaking abilities. You know, when he's not scoring, he's got he's been a much better passer, and they're even limiting that part as well. So I think Eric Spolster and that coaching staff, what they've done with this Heat team on Atlanta is basically they've said Trey Young is not going to beat us. You know, they're putting it in the hands of Danilo Gallinari and uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich and uh, all these other guys. And I think, you know, they're just, they're not rising up, Atlanta is. And you got to remember, this is a team that went to the Eastern Conference Finals a season ago. So it's a very impressive performance to see uh, what Miami has been able to do. Now, credit, they don't have John Collins. John Collins isn't in the lineup for Atlanta, but still, if you're knocking off a team like this, uh, it's very impressive. And, you know, everyone's sleeping on Miami just because of, you know, they've been holding steady at the top of the conference pretty much all season long. And, you know, throughout the season, people have been talking about, oh, the Nets and their struggles and Philly and Boston turning it around. You know, they've kind of shut the door on the Heat. When keep in mind, this is a Heat team that is coming off an NBA Finals appearance in the bubble, and they've got most of their rotation uh, still in that lineup. Jimmy Butler is still there. I mean, look at what he did in game two, 45 points to help the Heat win that game. You got Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson, two young sharpshooters. You bring in a veteran presence like Kyle Lowry. You have a tremendous center in Bam Adebayo. And then just great complementary pieces as well. You know, guys that, you know, were either like G League or uh, undrafted or got cut from other teams like Gabe Vincent and Max Struess. I mean, they have performed great so far in this postseason. They're not afraid of uh, the big stage. So ultimately, I see Miami coming out of this one. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a total sweep, but I do think it's going to end in about five uh, five or six games just because Miami Miami is a good team and I you know all signs to me would indicate that they can get uh, to the conference finals um, they can get past either Toronto or Philly that's what I think but we'll cross that bridge when we get there for now I like Miami to knock off Atlanta and get into the second round but then uh, the other series in the east might be the most entertaining right now and that's the Celtics and the Nets I mean, we'll talk about the Celtics side of things when we get into our Let's Get Local. Uh, but for this segment, I want to talk about specifically Brooklyn. And, you know, with them being down 0-2, I've got so many questions about Brooklyn. I mean, first off, what is going on with Kevin Durant in this series? Boston is just playing him so physical that he's per, he's putting up less than KD numbers. I mean, game one, he only scores 23 points of 9-24 shooting. Game two, he gets 27 points on four of 17. You know, 18 of those points were from the free throw line. He was 18 of 20. So I don't know, you know, how this kind of defense affects Kevin Durant so much. Because, I mean, when you get him into isolation, I mean, we haven't seen him nail that, you know, drive and then the pull-up jumper from the elbow. That's his go-to. And I feel like we've only seen it about maybe – you know, four or five times in the series when that should really be his go-to or, 
his fadeaway on the baseline. You know, we haven't really seen that that much. And I think, you know, credit to the Celtics defense for doing that. But you think with a player like Kevin Durant, he would be able to find a way to, uh, you know, just find different ways of attacking and different ways of scoring. And, you know, if he's when you when you have him along with uh, Kyrie Irving, because, I mean, Kyrie disappeared in game two. You know, he only put up, I think, 10 points in game two. Um, outside of those two, I mean, who else can you go to for scoring? I mean, Bruce Brown did great in the first half. Seth Curry was good uh, for a little bit in game one. Um, Andre Drummond was a, a good presence down low for uh, most of the part in game two. But I don't know what's going on with Brooklyn. I mean, it just looks like they're relying too heavily on their two superstars. And the, the playmaking ability uh, is just not there. It's not there with Durant. It's not there with Kyrie. And of course, now everyone's going to talk about, oh, when Ben Simmons comes back for game four, which we're finding out uh, today that that is the target date for his return. Um, I don't know how much of a difference is that going to make, you know, both on offense and on defense. I think, you know, when he's healthy and uh, when he's at the top of his game, he's a good passer. He's a really good defender. Um, but the thing is, he's probably going to be on a minutes restriction. You got to remember, this is a herniated disc in his back herniated disc. That's, you know, that's not something you can just cure with, uh, with just simple surgery. It's something that needs rest and rest and rest. So this is probably going to be like a 10 to 15 minute uh, play for Simmons. Um, and that's why I think game three uh, upcoming later this week is going to be huge, absolutely huge for this Brooklyn team. Because if they don't take game three, I think the series is over. You know, it's still possible. I mean, the Celtics are in the driver's seat, but for Brooklyn to have even a slimmer of a chance, they got to win game three absolutely have to win game three and they gotta you know Steve Nash has just got to find a different way on offense you know he's got to do it for a full 60 minutes and not just give the ball to Durant and Irving and hope for the best you know that's what uh, Brooklyn should be leaning on but for right now I'd favor the Celtics but I'm not going to you know put the net six feet under in a grave and say it's over not yet with two of the best players in the league right now but in the three, six matchup for the East, you got the bulls and the bucks right now. They're split at one and one. Uh, what a performance last night from Chicago. I mean, DeMar DeRozan in the press conference after game one saying there's no way in hell that he shoots six for 25. Like he did in game one. What does he do? He drops 41 in Milwaukee against one of the best defenses in the league. No three pointers though. It's been all mid range layups. No three-pointers were made in DeRozan's 41. And let that be a lesson that there are different ways to win games and to score on offense. I mean, when you put in DeRozan's 41, then you get uh, Vucevic, who had 24 and 13. Zach Levine had 20. I mean, great performance by Chicago. Absolutely when they needed it. And now, you know, everyone was saying after game one, oh, they're dead and gone now. But they were down big in game one. They got it close. Then they were up big in game two, but they did nearly lose it. So that's something to watch out for. Uh, but I think on Milwaukee's side of things, Chris Middleton and Bobby Portis, they didn't, uh, they left the game. I think that's a big difference, especially defensively. Uh, you know, when you have Bobby Portis, who can bring that physicality down low, yeah, Chris Middleton, who's a good perimeter defender. Um, and then we obviously know how Middleton is able to shoot. Um, but there's just little tiny things, I think, from Milwaukee that they need to clean up on. I mean, they were 20 of 31 
on free throws. You know, you make a few of those, it's a much closer game. Uh, and they still dominated the paint, though, 46 to 34. I think Milwaukee still has the, uh, the physicality edge uh, down low when you have guys like Portis, if he can come back, and then Giannis uh, and all those guys. I think Giannis, as, if he continues to assert himself uh, down low and in the paint, I think um, that'll be the difference for the Bucs. I still like Milwaukee to come out of this uh, series, but, I mean, props to Chicago for hanging in there with the defending champs. And I think, um, you know, everyone was talking about Celtics Nets is going to be entertaining. It is probably the most entertaining, but a close second has to be this one right here between Milwaukee and Chicago. But then the final series in the East is looking like a runaway right now, Philly and Toronto. And what a game last night in uh, Toronto, Canada, in the Air Canada Center. Joel Embiid, game-winning turnaround three in overtime knocking off the Raptors. Um, But what I want to look at in this series is, you know, I thought last night was a really, really crucial game, not just because, you know, you're changing home courts and we know how the crowd gets in Toronto, but, you know, no Matisse Thibault, which means the defense takes a little bit of a hit and you could see it last night um, defensively, you know, how they were able to Toronto. That is, they were able to, to stay in the game and get some big contributions, but when you've got Joel Embiid, you don't got to worry about his production uh, when he's healthy and he's on the court. I mean, 33 and 13 last night, you know exactly what you're getting. And hopefully Embiid can just stay healthy and stay on the floor because that's one of the things that's been uh, prohibiting the 76ers from uh, success. Now, there is good news and bad news when you look at this series um, on Philly's side of things. You've got the good news is Tyrese Maxey has been unreal unreal and a great surprise and hopefully he can be that third scorer and I think he's gonna have to be that third scorer um especially with the lineup that uh Philly has when really out, outside of the starting five you know it's it's really no one else um I mean Maxi putting in 38 points in game one having a near triple double in game two um I think that helps out so much when you have Maxi and then you could maybe plug in Tobias Harris for 15 or uh, other guys like that. But that's the, that's the good news. The bad news is James Harden just still doesn't look like himself. He, I mean, offensively, he's just not the same guy. I mean, come on, 19 points last night. This was, you know, when they made the trade with Brooklyn to get James Harden, they were expecting, you know, 30-point triple doubles uh, with James. But he hasn't been shooting well. He's still passing the ball great. But just offense and turnovers has been the one thing to really watch out for. And I do think Philly gets out of this just because they, they're overmatching Toronto right now. They're overmatching the Raptors. Um, but when you get to the second round and you got to play a team like, you know, maybe a Miami or you got to go deeper and play a Boston or a Milwaukee or Chicago or Brooklyn, can you go back and forth on the offensive side of things? Or do you put all the weight on Joel Embiid? That's going to be the question. Um, I do, I do think Philly does get out of this, but I think it's something to watch for when you get later on into the playoffs about Philly. What can James Harden do? And can he turn things around? Because we've seen throughout his career, postseason is, you know, nowhere near to what he does in the regular season. But that's what I see in the East. Let's talk about the West, uh, the series so far. And so far, everything's been tight. A lot of series have been tight. Every series in the West is one-to-one except for Golden State and Denver. But 
Let's start with the Suns and the Pelicans series, as that is no longer, at least in my eyes, a runaway for Phoenix, as now Devin Booker is out for games three and four with the, the hamstring injury. Uh, the series is tied 1-1 after a tremendous showing by New Orleans, I would say, in game two. I mean, you got the two top scorers, Brandon Ingram, 37-11, and 11, C.J. McCollum, 23 points, nine assists, eight rebounds in game two. New Orleans just had great energy, great energy. You know, the, my, my question is, you know, with Ingram and McCollum, can they continue to go tick for tack with uh, the Suns? Because Phoenix did the exact same thing, you know, last year with Chris Paul out of the lineup. You remember CP3 had COVID, uh, but they were still able to, you know, power through the playoffs. So Phoenix has, you know, done this before. They've done this before, but in terms of while Devin Booker is out, who is that go-to guy on offense? You have to think Chris Paul is probably going to do a lot more uh, scoring. You know, he's still going to have those great numbers of passing. DeAndre Ayton, I'd still take him over any of the bigs that New Orleans has. And plus, they still are a great defensive team. So I still like Phoenix in this series, but I can't, you know, say with a pen, you know, write it down that Phoenix is going to do it. You know, hopefully it's only, you know, a one or two game absence for Devin Booker, because let's face it, the offense runs through Booker. And if he's out for the rest of the playoffs, then I would say, you know, look for a new title contender out there in the West, because I don't think Phoenix can win uh, without Devin Booker. I think they can get out of the series just because the Pelicans do struggle a little bit on defense. And, you know, Ingram and McCollum might not have these kinds of games every single time. So I still favor Phoenix coming out of this series. But the team that's right behind them, Memphis at number two, they're tied right now with the seven seed Minnesota one to one. It's a surprisingly close series, I would say. And I, you know, I'm not overreacting to the game one uh, win by Minnesota just because I think, you know, the Timberwolves carried their energy from that play in victory and then just brought it over to game one. And then in game two, you saw Memphis really blow open the doors in the second half. And you know, it's still a relatively young Memphis team. They have a lot of limited playoff experience. I think you got to go back to Kyle Anderson, who's the, the vet of that team. And he's had playoff experience with the Spurs uh, early in his career. But um, defensively, again, finding their groove, you know, holding the leading score for Minnesota to 20 points. I was Anthony Edwards. I mean, it will be telling, though, what happens with Minnesota when they go uh, back back home. For the Wolves, because, you know, you've got a great uh, talent in towns. Anthony Edwards is uh, slowly becoming a big star. And you got D'Lo, D'Angelo Russell, got Pat Bev, who's a pest, which, by the way, Patrick Beverly is kind of insane for, you know, going all out after a play in victory. You know, I didn't get to say that last week because we didn't have a show, but Patrick Beverly is just he, he's a little crazy, but he's a good you know, he's good at what he does. And that's you know, being an irritant, being a pest, you know, offensively, defensively. Um, I think this can go the distance. I think it'll go six or seven games, but I still like Memphis to uh, to come out of this. They just need a little bit more uh, production from John Morant in terms of, you know, he can do all these athletic, uh, incredible plays, but, you know, just simplifying things is what, it, what it's going to come down to. That's what it's going to come down to. Uh, but I would say between the Warriors and the Nuggets, which is the next series we'll talk about, I'd say the most impressive uh, performance that I've seen so far in the playoffs has to be from Golden State. I mean, look at the lineup that they have now that they're up to nothing on Denver. Steph Curry doesn't look like, you know, he doesn't look hurt to me. That ankle seems fine. 
He's playing in a minutes restriction and he's already putting up 34 points in 23 minutes off the bench in game two. You've got your big three back on the floor uh, with Curry, Thompson, and Green. You've got Andrew Wiggins, who is an all-star. But the story for Golden State has been Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole makes this Golden State team even more dangerous than they already are. I mean, you take away the performances that Poole has had, and you'd still say the Warriors are one of the top teams out there. So I would not be surprised if Poole continues to shoot like this getting the Warriors all the way maybe to the conference finals. I would favor them uh, over Minnesota or Memphis in that series because look at what Jordan Poole has done this first two playoff games. Game one, 30 points on 9 of 13 shooting, 5 of 7 from 3. Game two, 29 points, 10 of 16 shooting, 5 of 10 from 3, and also throw on 8 assists and 5 rebounds. And you got to think this came out of nowhere, but he went to Michigan. He's been in March Madness. He knows about the big stage. And Michigan is as big a stage uh, as you think. So I give full credit to Golden State for basically going back, you know, and getting back to the formula that helped them win three championships. Obviously, Kevin Durant had a lot to do with it. But when you've got Curry shooting the way he is, Jordan Poole's playing great, Thompson, Green, all these guys have just been playing incredible. I think the most impressive performance in the playoffs has been the Golden State Warriors. And I would not be surprised if they even make it all the way to the NBA Finals. Again, uh, that'd just be another story. Uh, but finally, the last series, we'll talk about the Mavs and the Jazz. That Luka Doncic injury, injury is keeping things very, very interesting. Because if, if Luka wasn't hurt, I would say, you know, Dallas wins in five or six games. But... It's making everything 50-50. I mean, when you compare game one to game two, it's two totally different stories. Now, what I said before the end of the regular season was I thought this was the best supporting cast that Lucas had so far in his young career. And we're seeing it. You saw it in game two when Jalen Brunson put in 41. You had Maxi Kleba put in 25 off the bench. Um, I think Dallas can still find a way to win this series. They've just got to keep it tight. And you know, they are going up into Utah. Utah's always a tough place to play. But the Jazz just didn't look the same in game one uh, compared to game two. I mean, Mike Conley had no points. Rudy Gobert only had eight points. You know, this offense just didn't look the same, you know, in game two as you compare it to game one. And I don't know if that's, you know, an internal thing, if Donovan Mitchell, you know, is taking too much of a load or if he thinks he has to do too much. But you still have Boyan Bogdanovich. You still have Jordan Clarkson coming off your bench. You know, those pieces, this is a team with, you know, that core um, went, you know, was the number one seed. They were the number one seed at one point. So I don't know what it is about Utah. I, just, I don't really have a lot of confidence in them. I think Dallas is going to find a way to win this series, regardless of whether Luka plays or not. That's just what I think. But as always, the NBA playoffs are a very exciting time. And for all NBA fans out there, there's nothing better than postseason basketball in the NBA. Now, the 
NBA won't be the only league that's in their playoffs. The NHL is slowly closing in on getting into the race for the Stanley Cup. There's about a week and a half left in the regular season. And so far, most playoff spots look uh, locked up, I would say. Just looking real quickly at the standings, everything in the East is locked up. It's all about positions now. In the West, there's still a lot of teams uh, available for those uh, wild card spots. Just looking right now at clinching. Everyone in the Central is clinched. Uh, the Flames right now have clinched uh, a playoff spot. The Oilers, the Kings, the Predators, the Stars, the Golden Knights, the Canucks, and the Jets still remain in the race for the playoffs. I, I think the Jets are going to be eliminated at some point. But right now you've got uh, the Preds in that first wild card spot at 93. And you got the Stars at 91, the Golden Knights 89. Canucks at 87. So it's still totally up in there, uh, up in the up in the air, I should say. But for this week, I want to talk about the top two teams right now uh, in each conference. It's the, the leaders in the East, the Florida Panthers, and the leaders in the West, the Colorado Avalanche. It seems in the standings right now that they've locked up, excuse me, the uh, top spot in their conference. You got the Panthers right now. With 116 points, they're eight clear of Toronto, the next closest team. And meanwhile, for the Avalanche, they're also at 116, and they've got a good uh, 12 points ahead of the Flames, and they've already clinched the best record in the conference. So it's looking like we know who the top two teams are going to be in each conference. Um, But what I wanted to pose is really which team I think could go deeper. And when when you look at what the Panthers and the Avalanche have been doing I think they're both playing great. Um, And obviously to start on the Panthers side of things, they've been rolling, you know, the closer we get to the playoffs. I mean, they've won 11 straight games, uh, 14 of their last 15, you know, in that 11 game uh, winning streak, they've had four overtime wins. Um, And we know what this team's foundation is. It's just great offense. And they've got a ton of great guys. Uh, They're leading the league at over four goals a game. Obviously Jonathan Huberto leading the charge. Uh, as he's leading the entire league uh, with 81 assists, and he's second in the league with 111 points. The thing that leaves me skeptical, though, about Florida is just the defense. The you know, the defense that they have um, just leaves uh, some room for questioning because they're outside the top 15 in penalty kills. So special teams, you know, it, it it's a little tight uh, in there. And plus, when you look at the entire standings right now, I think compared to the West, it's tougher and it's tighter uh, for the Panthers to even go deep. I mean, the way they're slated right now, they'd be playing the Washington Capitals uh, in the first round. And the Capitals are no slouch, you know. It just takes one series to get Alex Ovechkin and that team to to get hot. But when you look at everyone else in the East, you've got uh, the Lightning, the two-time defending champs, you got the Bruins down the wild card. Obviously, you got the Hurricanes, the Rangers, the Penguins, and then even throw in the Maple Leafs, uh, who are in second. So I think it's tougher and tighter for the Panthers to really go deep. Um, And that's why I think the Avalanche are probably the more favorable team to make a deeper run uh, in the NHL, uh, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Because, I mean, as I said, they already clinched the best record in the West. You know, outside of these last two games, they're coming off a nine-game winning streak. And they just seem to have more depth. I mean, when you look at, you know, their top four guys, uh, Kadri, McKinnon, Ratanen, and Makar, 
they've all got more than 80 points on the season. They've all got more than 80. And I think it's Rottenen who's in the top five in points uh, on the season as he's leading with, I think it's 91 or 93, something like that. Uh, and then just there's some good trust uh, in the avalanche. You know, I would still take on the Florida side of things. They've got Sir Sergei Bobrovsky. I would take him over uh, Darcy Kemper um, in terms of a go-to goalie. But, I mean, Kemper is still playing great. He's third in the NHL uh, in save percentage. Um, but we've seen with the Avalanche, you know, the problem that they have is getting into the postseason. I mean, when you, when you get deeper and deeper, is that's where it gets tricky for Colorado. I mean, look at last year's postseason. They started 4-0 with a sweep of the Blues. Um, and then, you know, they take the first two games from Vegas. Uh, and then all of a sudden they lose four straight. So I think just finding a balance for Colorado uh, would be the would be the problem for me. And especially when you look at, you know, everyone else in the West, you know, the Wild have had their problems. Obviously, they swept the Blues last year. Uh, the Flames, the Oilers, um, the Kings, I think they can win those series. Uh, the Preds and the Stars, I think they can win. You know, to, to answer the overall question, I think the Avalanche have the better chance of going deeper as compared to the Panthers, just because I think the Avalanche have more depth. And plus, it's an easier conference uh, in the West as compared to the East. But I I do like these two teams. It would be hard for me to say right now that they'd be, you know, the favorites uh, for the Stanley Cup, just because I think, you know, you've got teams that are getting hot, you know, like the the Bruins have been getting hot in the last um, second half of the season. And plus, they're starting to get a little bit healthy. You've got the Lightning, who know all about postseason success. You've got the Hurricanes, who could play just as well on offense as Florida. I think the Panthers have a, a harder road. I think they've got a harder road to get into uh, the Stanley Cup uh, as compared to the Avalanche. But I will be monitoring the last uh, couple of games left in the NHL season because it's going to get tighter and tighter and you never know who is going to come out on top as you get into the Stanley cup playoffs. Now, as usual, we've got our sub headlines we do got to talk about, and especially being off for a few weeks, there's a lot we've got to unpack, but let's just get right into it with this week's edition of Quick Hits. And starting in the NFL, we've got another player asking for a trade, which could pile on to the even more crazy movement that we've seen in the NFL offseason. That is Debo Samuel asking for a trade from the San Francisco 49ers. Now, when I first heard about it, I thought it sounded a little crazy to request a trade from a team that were uh, Super Bowl runner-ups, you know, in 2020 and made it to the NFC Championship in 2022. So that that was my first instinct of thinking, what are you doing re uh, requesting a trade from this team? But you know, I see two. I see two issues. Obviously, one is money. You know, he's on the last year of his rookie contract, and you know, when you're seeing Tyree Kill, Devontae Adams, you know, get the kind of money that they're getting, that he would want to be paid the same. 
Um, you know, and especially, you know, Debo's situation is tricky because he's he's part wide receiver, part running back. So you're not sure exactly where to, you know, where he categorizes. Would you put him on the running back side of things or would you put him on the wide receiver side of things? Um, so I think part of that is something that I think I think the 49ers can work it out. You know, I think I you know, it's not like a, a Rodgers or a, you know, any kind of situation where you think it's long gone and it can't be uh, refurbished. That's, you know, money is one thing. I think the other thing is also the quarterback situation. We still haven't heard from San Francisco, you know, who is going to be the guy, you know, is it still, they're still leaving the door open for Jimmy G just because no one's taking him with the offseason shoulder surgery. And then, you know, hearing reports about Trey Lance not being, you know, what the 49ers thought he would be uh, looking at it in the offseason. So I think just, you know, that instability, that inconsistency is also another thing that Debo's looking at. But if they were to trade him, you know, I could see a lot of teams that could use him. You know, we're hearing reports about the Jets and the Lions being involved. I could see a team like the Patriots making a call or the Packers getting involved, getting involved or the Saints getting involved. You know, I could see teams like that, but just another, you know, situation to monitor here in the NFL offseason. Next, we go to baseball and talk about Freddie Freeman, maybe the big fish uh, in the free agency market. Uh, got his first series against the Atlanta Braves uh, earlier on. And what does he do in his first at-bat against his former longtime team? He goes long. He goes long and hits a home run in his first at-bat against the Atlanta Braves. Um, unfortunately, the Dodgers did not win that game as former Dodger Kenley Jansen got the save for Atlanta. And right now the Braves are looking at six and eight. So in the immediate future, you know, letting Freeman go hasn't really paid off in Atlanta side of things. But for the long-term future, they got what they wanted. They've got Matt Olson, uh, who could be a guy for, for a long time as compared to Freeman. You know, he's in his 30s. He probably has maybe, you know, that six years on his contract with LA left. As compared to Olsen, you could give him a good uh, 10 to 12 years, you know, still left. But so far, as I say in the immediate future, Freddie Freeman looks good on his new team. You know, he looks good in Dodger blue. So far in 12 games, he's batting 333, and he's hit two home runs and seven RBIs. So I think the Dodgers, you know, the Dodgers are playing great. They have the best record in baseball so far. Um, but in terms of, you know, this situation itself, it's got to feel good. Uh, for Freeman to kind of stick it to his old team. He's saying, oh, you don't want to bring me back? Well, look what's going to happen. I'm going to put success on with uh, my new team. So props to Freddie Freeman for getting a tiny bit of revenge against the Atlanta Braves. In sticking with baseball, though, you've seen a lot of heated moments early on, and the latest one has been between the Reds and the Pirates. And it's Cincinnati side of things. They got a little bit of beef uh, with uh, San Diego's new first baseman, Luke Voigt. Uh, if you missed it, there was a big collision uh, between Voigt and Stevenson. Uh, Stevenson was left with a concussion uh, after that collision. Now, when you first look at the video, it's really 50-50, at least in my eyes. You know, when you see it in real time, oh, it's it's bang-bang. You know, it doesn't look like there's, you know, intent uh, from Voigt. And it looked like the way the throw was from left field, that Stevenson, the catcher, had to go out to make the play. So he kind of stepped into the line of fire. But then when you go into the slow-mos 
and you get into other angles of it, you know, the replay showed a lot of intent. When you see Voight uh, with his hands in his arms, kind of, you know, with it up, trying to knock it. I mean, you see it, you know, with his uh, forearm, his hands, his elbow, you know, getting in there. And he could have been trying to knock the ball out with a collision like that. But just the intent, you know, I, I would favor Cincinnati side of things if you were to take sides on uh, the argument, you know, with Cincinnati. Basically, you lo- you lost your catcher. You lost one of your catchers because um, he's on the IL right now. He's on the seven-day concussion IL uh, because of Luke Voigt. And you got to remember, Voigt's a big guy, you know, 245 when he when he uh, makes a collision like that. That's, uh, that's a lot of weight and a lot of power coming at you. So... Um, I can see Cincinnati side of things and, you know, is it a dirty slide? No, I don't think Luke Voigt is a dirty player, um, but just the intent, you know, I think is dirty and I'm not going to label Luke Voigt as a dirty player, but it was just a dirty play on his side of things. Uh, Back to basketball really quickly. One of the more shocking Uh, announcements came last night at least in my eyes and that is Jay Wright retiring as head coach at Villanova after 21 seasons and that very I was shocked I was very surprised to hear about Jay Wright retiring because there were no there were no implications that Wright was going to leave I mean Villanova made the final four last year Wright had won two national championships already with the Wildcats I mean, I I was shocked. I don't know if it's something internally or if Jay Wright kind of just, you know, sat back and kind of similar to Coach K said, you know what, I've done all I can do. I think it's time for me to step back. So I will probably hear more about Jay Wright, about, you know, what led to his retirement. Maybe if he wants to go for a bigger job, um, if there's something in the NBA that could be opening up, you know, I'm not sure about that, but... I am very surprised to see one of the the better coaches uh, in the modern day NBA or uh, in the college game. You know, I put, you know, Coach K, Roy Williams, um, you know, in terms of coaches, uh, you know, in the 21st century. Very surprised to see Jay Wright uh, step away from Villanova after 21 seasons with the Wildcats. And then finally, to wrap up this segment, the sixth version of the match presented by Capital One was announced for June 1st in Las Vegas. And we know the matchups are going to be sort of a battle of generations. You got Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers on one team. On the other side, you got Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes. Now, you got a lot of uh, a lot of different you know storylines. I'm okay with this. I mean, I would have loved to have seen, you know, a PGA pro or someone who's good uh, involved with this, like a Desh- uh, Bryson DeChambeau, maybe a Phil Mickelson, a Brooks Kepka. Obviously, Mickelson is a, a whole nother story with all the controversy he's got. But, you know, you've got these sub headlines, you know, you've got the, the two quarterbacks who probably put on the game of the year or maybe the best game in the last uh, four years, three or four years, I would say on the same side of things. So you know that the questions about that game are going to be um, a fire. You know everyone's going to be asking Tom Brady about unretiring and Aaron Rodgers about his decision with Green Bay. And you're already kind of seeing it. You know, Tom Brady's already talking smack uh, to Josh Allen, you know, kind of 
revisiting his times talking smack to Buffalo like he was uh, during his time with the Patriots. So, you know, I, I do think it's going to be entertaining. I'm okay with uh, this version of the match, but would I have loved to have seen, you know, something better? Would I have loved to have seen Tiger pair up with Patrick Mahomes or maybe get Peyton Manning back in there or Steph Curry back in there? Uh, yes, but for this pairing of the match, I am perfectly okay with seeing this take place on June 1st. And that, once again, wraps up another edition of Quick Hits. time once again to go local and look at our Boston teams. It's time for our Let's Get Local segment of the week. And of course, the city of Boston has been buzzing about the Boston Celtics performance in the Brooklyn Nets series. They've got a 2-0 series lead now over the Nets after a tremendous comeback in game two. They were down by as much as 17. They rolled in the second half to win 114-107. And I think specifically looking at that game two, I think the offense just found their balance. I think you know, defensively, they really just tighten things up. And that that's super simple. You know, it's super simple for Ime Odoka to just tell his guys, look, we're going to be a little bit more intense on the defensive side of things in the second half, um, which is what they did. I mean, when they that's we know what that defense can do. Uh, and we've seen, you know, physically what they've been able to do uh, against Kyrie and KD. But for game two, the offensive side of things. I think they just found balance. You know, they're finding different ways to win. You know, when you look at game one, you see Jason Tatum uh, putting in great offensive performances, 31, including the tremendous buzzer beater. Um, You got Jalen Brown, who had a great fourth quarter in game two. But then you've got other contributing guys. Grant Williams with 17, Pritchard with 10, Tice with 15, Horford with 16 off of 20 uh, in game one. So I think, you know, Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard, Daniel Tice, these guys, I think they're totally okay, you know, with uh, these big-time situations. They know how to be good contributors. Now, this game would have been a blowout if not for Durant's uh, 20 free-throw attempts, 18 of 20. It would have been a bigger blowout um, on free throws. So the officiating, you know, looking at game one where, you know, both teams were essentially in the penalty, you know, not even halfway through the first quarter, I mean, you had so many guys in foul trouble in that first half for both sides uh, between uh, the Nets and the Celtics. I mean, you had uh, Durant last night with five fouls. Uh, In game one, you had Bruce Brown with uh, four early on. You had Drummond, who had to get taken out in that third quarter of game one after picking up his fourth foul. Um, So the officiating, you know, it hasn't been great. But then again, it it could be worse with, you know, so much physicality against Durant and with Irving that they could, you know, call everything. They could call everything. But uh, on the defensive side of things for the Celtics, they have found the right formula to knock off the Nets. And that's why I'm confident that this team can knock off Brooklyn uh, and win two of the next five games. Uh, Because look at what Kyrie and KD did in that second half in game two. A combined one for 17 shooting. Uh, and field goals combined between those two. Uh, So they know what they're doing there. They know to be physical with Kevin Durant, and we know that Durant just doesn't like it. He doesn't like being physical 
you know, getting heavy pressure on isolations. You got two guys contesting with a hand in his face. And you even heard it last night in the postgame presser. Durant was saying, yeah, it's on me to figure out how to work around uh, the defense that they're bringing. So I think the Celtics have to feel extremely confident taking both of their home games. Um, But I think game three is going to be very, you know, it's going to be really telling for me because if they can win that game, it's going to give me the confidence that this team can make a deep run. You know, they can do the same thing with a team like the Sixers or the Bucks or the Heat, who they might have to play with, uh, play against down the road Um, because they can do the same thing uh, with a guy like Joel Embiid, with Giannis, um, with Jimmy Butler. They can do all of that. Um, so if they can win game three in Brooklyn, it's not only going to set a good uh, standard for not only the rest of the series, but the rest of the postseason. Because, you know, the story is complementary players play better when they're at home. Um, and you could say that, you know, that's exactly what happened in game two. You saw Tice play great, Grant Williams, Peyton Pritchard, all the guys I just mentioned, they play great at home. Can they do the same thing when they go on the road, when it's, you know, a hostile crowd like Brooklyn, who are definitely going to be behind them, you know, on Brooklyn side of things are Seth Curry, Bruce Brown, uh, Andre Drummond, Nick Claxton, Goran Dragic. Are they going to play better uh, at home? You know, is it going to be a tale of two teams? You know, I kind of compare it back to uh, 2018 in the conference finals um, when the Celtics played uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers in LeBron James final stint. You know, in that series, it was two games in Boston, the Celtics dominated. Two games in Cleveland, the Cavs dominated. Then they basically went back and forth up until game seven when Cleveland won that. So is it going to be that kind of series is what I'm wondering. So I think all eyes are going to be on game three, which is not only going to set the stage for not only this Uh, As I said, it's not only going to set the stage for uh, the rest of the Brooklyn series, but for the rest of the postseason, how well is this team going to play when they have to go on the road? So we'll have to see what happens in that department. But what's not as exciting, though, has been the Red Sox start of the regular season. They're a little bit shaky uh, in my eyes right now. They're currently playing right now. They're playing uh, against Toronto. Uh, I don't have a score update, though, however. Um, but so far, they are six and six uh, to start the season. Um, and honestly, pitching, it's probably the most worrisome to me. And, you know, it was the most worrisome, you know, entering the season. So can't say anything has changed. I mean, you've got most of the starters, uh, they can't go more than five innings. I mean, Alex Cora won't let uh, Tanner Houck go more than five. Obviously, Rich Hill can't go more than five, uh, obviously, because of his age. Um And then you got Nick Pavetta last night who gave up five earned runs in the second inning, and he only went four innings uh, against the Blue Jays. But the bright spot has been three guys, at least in my eyes. Nathan Evaldi, uh, he's got his stuff. Michael Walker has been very surprising in that starting rotation. And Garrett Whitlock just carrying over, you know, a strong uh, 2021 campaign into 2022. And you'd think, you know, you'd put him in the closer spot, but there's still, it's still kind of like a closer by committee. And you're seeing the bullpen just continue to struggle to produce. I mean, Matt Barnes, you know, hasn't gotten the jitters off of last season. Cutter Crawford is in a totally new spot and he's struggling. Austin Davis, you know, you name it, you know, I would take anyone else's bullpen over the Red Sox bullpen right now. You know, they're just really, really inconsistent. And it's hard to say that um, you can trust this bullpen. 
you know, for the time being. Now it's still early on and it's hard to, you know, make these decisions right away. But just going off of what we've seen so far from this Red Sox team, I can't say that I trust this bullpen. I really can't. I really can't trust this team. But on the other side of things, you've got the offense. I mean, they have been surprisingly cold, surprisingly cold to start the season. They've only scored more than five runs twice so far. And this was supposed to be a strength when you put Trevor Story in the lineup uh, with uh, the hottest hitter, arguably, in the postseason in Kike Hernandez last season. He's only hitting 157. Uh, Strong first base production from Bobby Dahlbeck. He's only hitting 139. Trevor Story has struggled. Um, JD, Bogarts, Devers, um, you'd think that they would have been meshing right away. But, you know, in these first two weeks, that offense has been struggling. But it's been a great start, though, by Rafi Devers. And more in particular, who I'm paying attention to, Alex Verdugo. Verdugo is kind of getting lost in the shuffle because you have these big hitters like Devers and J.D. Martinez and Xander Bogarts. You know, he's getting lost in the shuffle. If you put him in that five sort of six spot, you know, so far he's hitting 325 with three homers and eight RBIs. So that just adds another weapon and not only another weapon, a left-handed weapon. Because as I said, uh, the last episode we had, this Red Sox team has a lot of right-handed hitting power. If you put Verdugo as a strong left-handed bat along with Devers, you know, that mixes up that lineup and it just gives you another piece that can lead you to success. So I think, you know, with the Sox at six and six right now, I think the performance is exactly uh, where, you know, the record indicates is they're six and six. They're just playing meh baseball. They're playing 500 baseball. They're not playing fabulous, but they're not. Uh, they're not playing fabulous, but they're not totally stinking. Um, so <laughs> I think uh, that's what you have to look at uh, with this Red Sox team. And, you know, you can really start making conclusions once you hit, you know, the later ends of the month. But just for now, you know, we'll talk about the immediates. And the immediates right now is that the Red Sox are just meh. They're playing meh baseball <laughs> right now at six and six. Um, but a team that hasn't been playing meh and should be playing better are the Bruins. And obviously, we've got their run into the postseason. They broke their cold streak as uh, the first time losing three straight games. They come up with back-to-back wins, including uh, the overtime winner uh, by Charlie McAvoy against the Blues. And the way I look at this team is, you know, there's still a chance to get out of that wild card spot. Just looking at the postseason right now, they're still one point behind uh, Tampa for number three in the uh in the in the standings in the division standings um so you know from where they are now they'd be playing against the hurricanes in the playoffs if they were to leapfrog uh tampa and get to number three they'd be playing toronto i think those are two totally different scenarios you've got a hurt the hurricanes who are essentially uh stanley cup favorites in some people's eyes or you've got uh, the Maple Leafs who have not won a postseason series in over 20 years. I mean, they blew a 3-1 lead against the Canadians. And the Canadians are one of the worst teams in the league right now in the NHL. So those are two totally different scenarios that I think the Bruins should be trying to push for. And I understand, you know, they've had a lot of guys who are injured. You know, still no David Poshnock, still no uh, Hampus Lindholm. Brandon Carlo came back into the lineup. Um, but 
I do think, you know, you kind of have to balance out, you know, taking care of health while also trying to get the best position possible. Cause I mean, if you don't, you know, if you struggle, if you struggle, you're, uh, you're going to get into that second wild card spot. You know, they've already clinched the playoffs, but it's in terms of positions right now. Cause if you struggle and prioritize health, you might get behind the capitals and in turn play the Florida Panthers, who I talked about uh, in the beginning of our, uh, one of the earlier segments, you know, you compare that to playing a team like a Toronto um, that's two different stories. So I think the Bruins should be going after uh, number three in the Atlantic division. Um, but I do think health does take the priority, you know, you can still push it. Um, but you know, if someone's talking about soreness or whatever, you know, and you see it right there, you think you can get it, you know, I say go for the position, you know, it's hard to say that health does take the priority. Cause I think it does, but I do think this team should be trying to push uh, for number three in the Atlantic division. Um, but to talk about what they're doing on the ice, I just think, you know, like usual penalty kill and physicality have to be the areas to address. This team has been struggling and obviously not having pasta um, is a, is a big factor in all of that. But I think, you know, a bright spot for this team has been Mark McLaughlin to see him uh, come back. Mark McLaughlin has been a great find, and I think he can be great uh, for future success because, you know, Patrice Bergeron doesn't have that much time left. You basically bump up your lines. You get McAvoy as your first line center. Uh, you could throw uh, Craig Smith as your second line center, um, and then you can throw McLaughlin in there. Um, so I'm very, uh, I'm very impressed to see Mark McLaughlin uh, do what he did so far for this Bruins team. And, you know, it'll be a real test uh, these last stretch of games for the Bruins. Just looking at the schedule real quick, they're going to play uh, the Penguins tonight. Uh, and then uh, they've, they've just got some really tough games coming up. You know, they host the Rangers Saturday afternoon. They travel to Montreal, which should be an easy game. Uh, and then they host Florida on Tuesday. So it'll be really interesting to see what the Bruins can do uh, at the end of the regular season if they go in hot or if they go in cold, because, you know, that was one of my arguments uh, earlier on was that did this team peak, you know, once the calendar hit 2022, when they played well in January and they played well in February. So it's just something to watch for, for this Bruins team. But again, there's nothing more exciting in the city of Boston than seeing these sports teams bring on the success. our show as we always do we look at our lol moment of the week and we're actually sticking in the boston area for this one as last night through all the intensity and the physicality of the nba playoffs there was one moment that made a lot of fans just burst out and laughing so this week's lol moment of the week goes to marcus smart and jalen brown so You'd think with a team playing as well as they did, uh, the Celtics that are, they would just be all intense and focused on playing defense and scoring the basket. But there was a moment, uh, it might be unintentional on their eyes, but just, you know, that's intensity of the playoffs right there. So it was a priceless reaction uh, looking at this during game two 
It was later on the Celtics looking to just put a dagger in it. And Marcus Smart had a great finish at the basket, throwing it up with his left hand. And when you look at his reaction, he's holding up that left left hand, similar to Shaquille O'Neal, what he used to do and look at his hand. He's kind of pointing at it saying, I did it with that, did it with that. But what made it laugh was Jalen Brown coming into the picture and he grabs Smart's hand and he's looking at it too, just in awe of what they did. And when I saw this in live action, I was bursting out laughing. I was like, oh my gosh, that is hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. And again, intentional or not, it was just, it was so funny to see that kind of reaction. And everyone has that reaction. When they do something with their offhand, they throw it up saying like, look what I did, look what I did, but to stare at it like that. And Jalen Brown, it was like they were looking at a gold mine or something, or they found like buried treasure or something. Um, But I mean, this is a Celtics team. We know that they're not short on confidence, especially Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart is nowhere near short on confidence, especially after winning defensive player of the year. I mean, when you look at it entering the TD Garden, he had a robe on, you know, like boxes play. And in the back, it said D-P-O-Y. So we know that this, this guy and this team is full of confidence. And we saw it with the reaction, you know, throwing up the left hand. Jalen Brown coming in, he might be maybe the second most confident player. And he came in, you know, looking at it. And what's funny is that, you know, last year, this was a team that, um, you know, had locker room issues. When you hear about it uh, in the locker room, there was some continuity issues, um, you had guys not really listening to Brad Stevens or Marcus Smart. Um, and now look at him. Look at him. You know, one year later, you got Smart and Brown, who basically love playing with each other. You could throw Jason Tatum in that as well. They love playing each other, and they can have moments like this. And, you know, when you go to the video of uh, Marcus Smart getting handed uh, Defensive Player of the Year by Gary Payton, um, you get his whole team just showering him. And they absolutely love him. So, it's amazing the the year turnaround that the Celtics had. Um, and I think it just culminated with uh, the, that moment right there. Marcus Smart pointing at his left hand, Jalen Brown coming in, just staring in awe at it. Um, it's surreal. It's kind of surreal to look at. So Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown for giving us a nice burst of laugh in a high-intensity NBA playoff game. You have earned yourselves into this week's LOL moment of the week. So that wraps it up for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or watching us on YouTube, make sure, as always, you follow our pages on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you got a point you got to get across, just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.